Good evening, everybody. Officials here. Welcome to the new episode, the fourth episode of the coup d'etat of boxing. And uh, we have corruption in boxing with us tonight. Corruption. Are we doing the official? I'm doing really great. Cannot wait to, to talk about the last night cards. Many things happened, many fights, good fights. Absolutely. You know, boxing has been in an induced coma for for the best part of four months, maybe even longer than that, when a, a fantastic schedule was initially carved out. But... Um, well, we all know the turbulence that's been going on around the world and um, a lot of fights being cancelled, rescheduled and fighters sceptical about fighting in view of the uh, significant reductions in purses, etc. Um, so yesterday, um, official boxing finally came out of the... Um, the life support machine and that I think that life support machine has been passed on to all of us who live in Europe having to say it stay up to 7 a.m if we're in central Europe uh, European time um, so many cards from various jurisdictions um, a little bit like public transport in Europe officially you know you try and wait for a train in Holland, you know, nothing arrives, and then you get like six of them arriving at simultaneously. Um, yeah, a lot to talk about, um, but um feel a little bit like, um feel a little bit like um, I'm still sort of hallucinating trying to recover from a, you know, a 70-hour week and a 17-hour day yesterday before um, you know, some of the cards started in the United States. So, um, yeah, and um, it's kind of difficult. It's kind of tough when you when you want to give a, an informed, concise opinion, which involves, you know, viewing the content over and over again, you know, Establishing the key points, etc. You know, doing a a punch count as we like to do as well. But um, 
Um, a lot of the content has been taken offline, so uh, we'll get a better look during the week. So we'll um, we'll um, proceed um, probably chronologically. Official, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that would be the the right way to do it, man. Okay. Let's start off with the World Boxing Super Series final, which um, finally it uh, you know it concluded after a hell of a long time. Uh, Cruiserweight um, it was in a nice location actually in in Munich, Germany. Um, I guess the two favourites that were going to that were going to make it, given their experience that they had from the inaugural tournament, both being knocked out in the semi-finals. Myris um, Bridis from Latvia um, taking on Uniel Dortikos of Cuba. Um, both of them um, kind of inconsistent paths into the final but um instead of going back and looking at uh Breedus's form coming into the tournament um initially i wasn't aware but when i did some research i realized that his performance against uh, niall mccallion over in chicago um he was very flat but he was flat from round one to round 12 and so that was an indication that that was an aberration. It wasn't something that was perhaps uh, enforced upon him in the ring, given what McKellian was doing, say, after the initial exchanges. But Bridas was flat from the very start. So clearly he, something was wrong and uh, later realized that he had both shoulder and, and elbow injuries and it kept him out of training for a prolonged period. Um no such relapses official in, in, in the final. You know, Junior Dortikos, he clearly left his form back in Cuba because, my God, was he absolutely useless on the night. Um, it was almost like, a, you know, watching a genetic clone, perhaps, a, you know, a Nexus 6 designed by... Dr. Eldon Tyrell back in 1982 that was fighting in the ring um, didn't take any advantages of what he what he had in terms of numerical advantages, height, reach, maybe even power. Um, he um, he clearly had no um, no awareness of of, of boxing. At, at long range from the outside where he had the advantages there was no speed to his work there was no subtleties um once he edged closer and closer to you know marius breeders he was more than happy boxing on the back foot and he was he was in reinvigorated he had you know tremendous footwork bouncing one way bouncing the other way Left, right, left, right, just confusing Dortikos, who clearly was cumbersome. Um, Bridas um, was able to establish his punches, had great accuracy straight from the opening bell. 
Dorticos, extremely telegraphed. Um, his activity had all restricted significantly as well. No punch variety, no variation in tactics. Um, looking to maybe set him up for the, you know, the one-two of his jab and then the right hand. But Breeders knew what was coming. He was too experienced, too wily, um, had faster hands, had faster feet, better IQ. Um, he put on a, a great performance official, just comprehensively uh, boxing Dorticos. You know, I got I got so disillusioned with Dorticos's um, one-dimensional tactics. I, I I pretty much was disgusted by round three as we were both really looking forward to this specific bout, given the high level and the stakes that was involved, being a final. Um, Dorticos was, that's the worst performance I think I've ever seen. Um, yeah, official, nothing to, um, nothing, no ambiguities in the fight at all. It was a, pretty comprehensive win for Myris Breeders. I, you know, I don't really want to get into semantics of giving Dorticos, you know, maybe he did this and that, but he was, he was second pretty much throughout the entire bout. Um, Breeders, a deserved victor. Now, Myris Breeders clearly had, you know, had the, had his name etched on the trophy. If, if you're impervious to, um, to being outboxed by Noel McKellian and, and getting a you know a comprehensive decision victory, and also if you can, um, you know, do a best impersonation of you know a Wade Barrett with that elbow against um, Christoph Glavaski um, and escape uh, being disqualified and even eliminated from the tournament, but you know you're losing your title because. The rematch couldn't be enforced given prior commitments to this tournament, but that was ridiculous. You know, if if there was proper adjudication, they would allow those two to have fought um, Glavatsky and, and and Breeders and whoever prevailed. Albeit no, uh, no, no warfare in the ring, and then the winner of that bout should have then fought, uh, you know, Uniel Dorticos in the final, but. It is what it is, you know, Breeders got through and um, there was no way he was losing this final. And uh, yeah, pretty, pretty predictable, straightforward points victory, official. Exactly, like you told in the last match. I mean, uh, the road that uh, Breeders had uh, to these finals was was not was not that easy uh, for him but although he was giving you know the how do you say the advantage by by the officials uh, in a quarterfinals then half finals with some absolutely disgusting um, refereeing from Robert Bird but then talking about the final itself I'm not that surprised of the outcome of the fight because I really knew that 
I was I was already speaking about Dorticos being pretty much uh, one trick pony and not being able to to vary his attack and uh, try new things and uh, that he would not be um, too much difficult to you know to, to get figured out by by Predis, but I'm still surprised to what extent uh, Bridis was able to to easily outclass him in almost all the rounds, uh, and uh, yeah, <laughs> you heard me talking for 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 the past three shows about Dorticus and his <laughs> his volume, <laughs> his punching output, which uh, makes me laugh at this moment because <laughs> we were not seeing any of it in their in their fight the last night. Uh, the way he was looking was just terrible. So yeah, I, I saw that Bridis was uh, using a lot of lateral movement in order to to prevent Dorticus from setting his feet, because he clearly needs to set his feet in order to punch, and that that was something that was really giving him problem from uh, from the first round up till the end of the fight. Now. Uh, why was his punching output much lower than usually? Uh, I would guess that it's it it must be because of of the counters from uh, from early on from the earlier stages of the fight coming from uh, from Mary's Bridis. So and and plus not only that but he clearly saw that Bridis has a. Uh, a superior timing and hand speed and that he was beating him to the punch but I was still negatively surprised by Dorticus by his lack uh, lack of will to to try better to at least go go out on his shield that's the very least I was expecting from him because one more time I'm not at all surprised that he got outbugged by British although I didn't think it would happen to to that extent, but I'm surprised that he's at the lack of his will to try to try something to maybe not make technical adjust adjustments because he is limited compared to Bridis, but to at least uh, give his all and up his uh, volume, his work rate, but we were not seeing any of it. Maybe just a bit from the from the eighth round on in the spots where he he really there was a couple of moments, but just a few a few of those moments in the fight where he really pushed to you know he he tried to to really pressure Mary's Bridges, but was very ineffective. And the only thing that I saw him uh, trying out from the eighth round on was to. To throw a jab and then uh, um, change his uh, his level to drop down to to squat and then uh, throw the overhand right, but aiming it at Bridis's chest. So because he figured out that um, that Bridis was ducking his uh, his jab, but he was not really able to to land really significant uh, right hand that would hurt him. He landed a couple of those and as well a couple of looping right hands around his guard. 
but Bridis as well has uh, has a great chin, so and a good poker, uh, poker face, um, really high ring IQ once more. So he he didn't did not have a lot of problems to to manage what was coming from uh, from Dorticus. That's my view, and at the end, very well deserved victory for Bridis. You know, you made an, an interesting point there. Surely Dorticos and his trainer would have gauged that Breeders does have an excellent chin coming into the tournament. There were, there's, a, there's a whole archive of fights in which uh, a fighter can peruse. You know, information is just so available in the public domain now. So it's very easy for trainers to, you know, conduct research now. So... It, it almost begs the question, um, do you really think that a single straight right hand is going to knock him out or even significantly debilitate him? When, have you, when is there any empirical evidence of that happening to breeders? Um, so at least you've you got to work in combinations. You've got to trap him up against the ropes. He didn't know how to cut off the ring. Um and um, when when official, we're talking about the the most redeeming quality that a fighter had in the final was his chin. That's almost a, that's almost a, a condemnation of the fighter's ability when all we can speak about is his chin, not his ability to set up punches, his accuracy, his speed, his ring generalship his defense, no, none of those fundamental aspects that we all like to talk about, but um, my God, did he take some, did he take some vicious uppercuts? Breeders just got so confident that he just thought, let me just, let me just scrap with my jab. There's no need, you know, I can just catch him with lead hand uppercuts, which is crazy, but it, that's the confidence that he had. Um Dorticos would come in, head down, faint a little bit. Breeders would go right, sometimes faint with that straight right hand, shift to his left and come back with that left hook, left uppercut, and then pivot it off before Dorticos could even throw a punch. It was... <laughs> it looked amazing, but Dorticos... <laughs> um, wow. Um, <laughs> don't know what happened. Maybe uh, somebody gave him some uh, some white widow super cheese in the dressing room because he was a slow. He looked stoned. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, two great points you just made. I mean, how how terrible you have to look uh, in the finals. That uh, a biggest plus for you from this final is your chain. Your is us talking about com complimenting you on your ability to take a punch. It means that you you were not able to do anything in the ring except to take British's punch as well. And yeah, that, that's something that I want also wanted to mention as well. The way uh, British was slipping to the left on the inside towards uh, Dorticus's right hand, and the moment he slips 
he he throws a lead left uppercut. It was so nice, so nice faint uh, upper body movement, and then great uppercuts. And he he was landing great up uppercuts with both hands. Uh, yeah, great point. Yeah, but uh, that I think that that's everything worth mentioning when it when it comes to this to this yeah. final. Yeah, there's there's not a not a great deal more we can say about that. Um, Breeders, you know, has has the victory now. What do you think he's going to do? Official, stay, remain at cruiserweight, retire, move up to heavyweight. Any thoughts? Oh, to be honest with you, I never thought about it. That's a good question. I mean, everything is possible, but in in my opinion, uh, it's one thing what I would uh, like him to do next, and I would have to think about it. But I do think what what he really wants to do is to continue boxing. I don't. I do not expect him to retire for now. So, is he going to move up to heavyweights or stay there at cruiserweight? I don't really know. But I would not be surprised if he if he moves up once more, and uh, try to to earn uh, earn some money there, possibly. Or what are your thoughts? Yeah, agreed. Um, I, I think a rematch with 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 Christoph would be futile. You know, Breeders, I, I think, would would dispose of, of Christoph within within sort of five, six rounds. Um, it's in a way it's it, it's kind of disappointing that there was only one belt to fight for, given that he was stripped of, of the belt he he picked up from beating, well, controversially from 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 the Christoph Glavaki fight. So maybe he has aspirations of becoming undisputed. You know, you've got a Lingua Macabu, him and Breedus. That could be a pretty explosive fight as well. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely some good fights out there. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe he'll, uh, he'll remain at cruiserweight. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, anyway. So, Myris Breedus would have the World Boxing Super Series Cruiserweight Tournament. Now, I really hope they don't do it for another year, even though the Cruiserweight division has been one of the best in boxing from its inception. I wouldn't I wouldn't argue, but hopefully if they're going to do it again, I wouldn't mind some new personalities, you know, bringing, bringing the likes of Makabu as well. <laughs> you know, he'll, he'll make the tournament interesting. But um, all right, official, from... from München, Germany, we go to, um, there was a, I think, how many cards were there? Now, the Josh Taylor fight, I, I, I didn't see. Uh, I'm not sure whether you had an opportunity of, of seeing the fight. Oh, yeah, I did, but uh, I was not watching the fight. I cut uh, a <laughs> full fight on YouTube later. Uh, but it's not liked. It lasted for a long time. It was uh, um, Josh Taylor quickly and easily disposed of of the Thailand Thai fighter. 
it was a body shot in the beginning. Uh, anybody watching it live, they thought that it was a dive. And man, the, the last night, there were many fights where people were talking about the possible dives. But anyways, speaking of Taylor's performance, it was a very well-placed liver shot, liver punch in the pocket. It was so short, so quick, while his Thai opponent was on the ropes trying to clinch him, I think. Uh, and so that's when Josh Taylor landed a really quick and a very short left hook to the body and uh, dropped him immediately. Uh, before that, he was... Josh Taylor was looking sharp. His footwork was looking good. His, uh, his reflexes were just as they should be. So, you know, I was not able to being that the fight lasted so short. I was not really able to, to get so many information about the current form of Josh Taylor, but I do think after all, he was looking very sharp for, uh, for uh, how long the, the fight lasted. Yeah. He's a, he's a terrific fighter. He has that, that viciousness the proclivity to you know induce injuries you know really target the body the head if if josh has taken a few punches and you can see the look just changing on his face uh, and there's menace written all over it, and I like that 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 vicious streak he has. Um, I saw a little bit of the preparation, you know, the shape he was in. I think he had quite a long training camp, and he looked. I did. I didn't see the way in, but I saw some of the training footage up until up until about a week ago, and he looked in the best condition I I had seen him in. So clearly. Um, his discipline is there, which is very good to see. Um, he definitely wants Jose Ramirez, and I guess a little bit more, given Ramirez's recent performances. So that fight needs to happen. No more fucking around. They don't need any more warm-ups or tune-ups or interims. or Hopefully Top Rank can get that fight done ASAP. It doesn't matter if there's a crowd there or not. It, it's long overdue. Josh Taylor, one thing I know is he is struggling at the weight. I spoke to a, a friend of mine over in Scotland who's actually been there to see his fights, and he told me that he was, that he um, and, and Josh were side by side when, when he was getting, uh, you know, a picture taken with Josh, and he said that, you know, both of them are exactly the same height. And my friend, he's he's five feet eleven. So I'm not sure what boxer cast what measurements they have uh, you know stipulated on the side, but um Josh is a very, very big 140-pound fighter now. I don't know how long he can maintain that discipline to remain at the weight. I think it would be perfect opportunity now. Have to have the undisputed belt. You know, if you can win it, you've pretty much beaten everybody, you know, 
good fighters, you know, Baranchik, Postal, Regis Progray, Jose Ramirez. That is an excellent, an excellent uh, murderous row of fighters at 140 pounds, you know, significantly better than what Terence, his predecessor, undisputed, uh, may have, uh, you know, accrued. So if Josh can get that, um, then a great time to move up. What do you think, official? Yeah, absolutely. It would be really wonderful for him to end up his reign at 140 in, a, you know, in a big way uh, to to have that fight against Ramirez. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are always some other top fighters at 140, which is a pretty hot division at the moment. But yeah, I'm not I'm not surprised at all uh, hearing you talking about him uh, having difficulties to make to make weight. And by the way, Shep in the chat is saying they're uh, on box track. It's five foot ten. He thinks. But anyways, yeah, he he looks to me as a as a big, uh, really huge one forty pounder as well. And uh, yeah, imagine that. Yeah, yeah. So, so this this last fight for was still at one forty, exactly. So, yeah, give him one more fight against Ramirez, and uh, it would be a much better uh, one forty career than what Crawford had, definitely. And uh, but but he has that one similarity with Crawford, the mean streak that I'm also seeing in, in Crawford. Yes. Also, and I, I like a lot. I like a, I, I like it a lot about both of them, except that uh, uh, how do you say it? Josh Taylor was able to tap in into that uh, uh, to, to fight with mean intentions against much better fighters. And although he's a he's a, a very very well rounded boxer, he can uh, box at long range, mid range. But also he he loves to brawl on the inside. He's he's very good, you know, and uh, knows how he has a good ring IQ. Knows how to use his look. He's not a powerful puncher, uh, although he's uh, he's not a weak puncher neither. But he he has that strength, that force, that size that he even imposed uh, it. Uh, at the latter stages at the second half of the Regis Progre fight and that's what won him, uh, won him rounds there so it would be interesting to see how how he would do against, uh, against the bigger opponents once he moves up to 147 and another interesting thing is at least, look, I was not able to, to see much from Ben Davison as a coach except for uh, what he was doing with Tyson Fury. And uh, I, I don't know if, uh, if he, he's going to try to, to make uh, Josh, Josh Taylor box the same way he, he wanted Fury to box. So I'm waiting to see how that... <clears throat> that's I, think that be, I think that'd be a mistake. Probably, yeah. Although he's a pretty dimensional boxer, he can go orthodox switch hits. He can fight from the outside. He can use his feet very well, as he did in some of the the, the mid to latter rounds against Regis Progre, where he's actually bouncing up on his toes, sometimes on the balls of his feet as well. 
So he's got a bit of everything. Uh, but for him to be specifically molded into a, a, a safety first type of fighter would that is a complete contradiction of I think his his genetic makeup. That's not what he is. Uh, he he's a fighter. He wants to knock you out. Uh, he wants to hurt people, and we love watching him hurt. You know, we want to see broken ribs, guys on the floor, you know, crying, you know, internal bleeding. That that's that's what we like. Uh, a little bit graphic, but you get you get what I'm saying. So um, there's no need to remold his his fighting approach. One area in which they can improve him is his jab is not good enough at the moment. He's going to need a much more harder authoritative jab. If he can improve that, then that'll be a, a major weapon in his arsenal going forward, both offensively and defensively. And if he's having problems with weight, then it'll allow him to redistribute his 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 breathing throughout the fight as well as he can take as he can take you know breaks off just firing you know vicious body punches and power punches so yeah um we'll see still very early days between the two i don't think ben david's ben davidson's influence is going to naturally transmit into a fighter who's had a, a specific style for the best part of, you know, 20 years for, from taking up boxing at whatever, six, seven years old. So, um, Yeah, but one just quick question, please. Uh, yeah. See, I was, I was thinking a bit about his uh, future uh, venture at 147, and I was thinking, look, he's fighting at short range at 140, like I said, from what I was personally seeing, for example, take for example the progress fight. In the progress fight, uh, as long as he was boxing, trying to box and um, you know to go skill for skill with progress at mid at short range, he was getting outfought by progress uh, going you know skill for skill with him. But uh, when he started winning the rounds against progress was when he started utilizing his uh, his own strength and size over over much shorter progress. So I'm wondering, uh, once he moves up to 147, how do you see him doing that same thing against uh, the bigger fighters in the in the pocket, the short range? Maybe maybe after all, there's uh, there's there's an argument that it would possibly suit him better to to box more. I don't know. I'm not sure about it, but I'm I'm looking to see what do you think about it. The the reason why he's more effective at that short range official is his reach. He has extremely short arms, which are, as you know, are more in tune to fighting at, you know, inside the pocket, short range, even mid-range. Um so he's gonna have problems up against boxers who can who can move a little bit, establish their range. Um, he's going to have to use more of his footwork and he's going to have to have a better jab to get at a, at a shorter range in which he can start slowing them down with his body work. So the two are intrinsically linked, his footwork and his jab, and he's going to improve his jab at 147 pounds up against 
bigger, stronger, even longer athletes. Um, but he, he has already some numerical advantages. He's significantly taller than than most of them as it is. I think it's only maybe Boots Ennis who's about 5'11", something like that. Um, a lot of them are around sort of 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, you know, the, the sort of elite fighters, you know, Spence and and, and Crawford, they're around sort of 5'8", five, 5'9", five, nine, five, nine and a half. So he's got a, he's got a couple of inches on them. Um, I think he's got the ability to beat both of them. Um, I think, I think Crawford may be a tougher fighter for him because he's going to have to use a lot more movement and, and subtleties against somebody who does have the ability to fight, um, around the ring at different sort of ranges and then can turn that up as the fight progresses looking for a knockout. Uh, Spence is going to be there to be hit. Um, it's whether he has the punch resistance against the bigger guys. Um, I'm not overly confident of that. I've seen him buzzed up a number of times about 140 pounds, but um, I don't know. I, I guess punch resistance is also heavily dependent if a fighter is is, is struggling attritionally to make weight. Your legs are significantly weaker. That That's always... The, the, the prime deficiency a fighter has who's struggling at a particular weight. Now, if a fighter gets knocked down, it's not whether he has a bad chin. It's all about his legs. It's the foundation. If they can get getting up, then the chin's irrelevant. It's the legs which is the issue. So at 147 pounds, rehydrating maybe to 155, 160 that's going to suit him much better. I think he'll be heavier. He'll be healthier. He's not going to have to be cutting significant weight or having long training camps. Um, I think he'll be healthy official. I think he'll be stronger. He'll take the punches better as well. He may even hit a little bit harder. Those are variables we don't know yet, but um, a bright future definitely at 147 pounds, I think. Yeah, and a really, really great point, uh, corruption. Because, yeah, first of all, uh, I was the first thing I have uh, in mind when when talking about Josh Taylor is his size and his height, and it's his <clears throat> his body shape is uh, is uh, not not usual, you know, for for the fighters because he's. Looking at him, you'd say he's very tall and lanky, but as you mentioned, and I forgot it, his arms are not that long, uh, not that lengthy. And yeah, of course, uh, thinking about him versus uh, Spence and uh, Crawford, definitely Crawford would be a tougher fight, stylistically at least. So yeah, a lot of great points. All right. Let's um, proceed now to the um, the Fox pay-per-view cards in the United States. Quite an unusual way in which they elongated the pay-per-views official. Pretty, a bit of a nightmare for us over in Europe, <laughs> having to sort of, you know, stay up to 7 a.m. But... Um, 
superficially, it was a very packed out card. But for any speculators out there, this was Christmas. Um, I felt it was one of the easiest dual cards. To, well, the entire boxing over the whole weekend was was just, for me, it was just unbelievably simple to predict the outcome of pretty much every single fight. Um, there was no, there was no real, um, nothing too significantly different about what was going to happen. Um, we kicked off, um, the first fight I see on the US card was a fight I was actually looking forward to. John Real Casimiro, who had um, annihilated Zelani Tete over in the UK and taken his WBO bantamweight world championship. Fighting on the first time in the United States, um, well, first time on a major card. I think he's already fought in seven other countries beforehand. Definitely a road warrior. Not always done well on the road, but a tremendous fighter nonetheless. We were kind of hoping for a, a free, built, un, free built unification with the monster in a way. Um, but um, for whatever reason, and, you know, I've got a little bit more information about that, but so many people are contesting that as to who may have indicated that they were reticent to take the fight. No names, Mr. Bandido, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, no, they, um, okay. That, you know, the fight didn't happen. Um, so Duke Micah stepped up from Ghana an Olympian who fought Mike, Mick Con Conlin, in the Olympics, undefeated fighter, but officially, if you'd analyzed his resume coming into the fight, not a great deal of power, uh, a number of victories accrued on points, so power was a question, even against mediocre opposition. Um, and if you watched him carefully, you knew that lateral movement or even taking a step back was not even in his lexicon. He was just a fighter who'd, who was going to trade, open up wild hooks in the pocket. And um, a kind of a nice fight to get the show rolling, quite from a marketing sort of strategy, you know, just have a little brief war. You knew Casimiro's class would prevail. Um, a, a very exciting first round. You know, Micah, he was definitely, you know, trading out. He was throwing that um, that Julius Indongo crazy left hook, <laughs> wide as hell, spinning around. You know, it was like, what the hell was you doing, man? Um, Casimiro, I think, really hurt him straight away with that bolo punch as the Filipinos do to the to the body. Um, that's that's one of their trademark punches. He was hurt very early in the first, but he kept fighting behind a, a guard, which was to his detriment because he clearly couldn't see the action, wasn't prepared to take a step back, even try and roll or ride the punches. It was just leaning forward behind a, a very tight guard, you know, trying to keep his, his chin 
tucked down, but unfortunately not looking at what Casemiro was doing, who, who was firing all of the repertoire of punches. <laughs> he, he was having a field day. Uh, he took a few, but he landed, you know, he landed uh, uppercuts, straight right hands, you know, vicious body punches. You know, that, that was really the key in the first round. Micah definitely felt the punches. Uh, then was became a little bit more transfixed behind that tight guard. No real transgression in what he was going to do. Uh, he was going to fight attritionally. Um, things, um, I don't know, official with that first pretty, pretty damn good first round. I felt what was your thoughts? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> John Real Casimero is a, is a real beast. Uh, the, the way he fights, fights is extremely exciting. Really, for if you're a fighting fan, you you cannot say you're not enjoying his fights because he's absolutely he's often getting really wild, and he was wild from from the get go, from the very first round. But like I was able to to speak to to our uh, mutual Filipino friend about him who put him who put me on uh, on uh, Casimero because I was not really following him until he asked me to to watch some some of his films and study him and I saw many good things he he does in the ring and beside although he he gets wild very often but he's very extremely exciting to watch uh, he's <laughs> i don't know he's he's just uh, it's it's a shame that i think if he was american and uh, boxing fighting that way at a, at a higher weight class he would potentially be a huge star uh, he likes to brag, brag in the ring he likes to <laughs> to do the push-ups after his victory and everything else we saw in that fight and uh, he's he, he's another guy who has really mean intentions he's really a mean motherfucker official let's talk about the second round and specifically the sequence leading to the first knockdown because <laughs> We were talking about that before the show started. Um, the knockout was a it was largely induced by a, a left hook that Casemiro landed. Quite a short left hook. Micah once again behind a, a guard had his head twisted in a in some weird angle, trying to deflect as much as he could away from the punches but not not looking at the target you know you've got to keep your eyes on an opponent you know if you're taking punches like that then you've got to get out of range and step back but nope you know clearly been watching too many tapes of joshua Kalotti. um casimero lands a, a left hook then he then he has all of the time in the world to measure him. He gets full extension on his lead hand. He's literally pointing where he's going to land the follow-up punch. But then Duke Micah's already off balance after the first left hook. 
And then Casemiro has all the time in the world if he wants just to accelerate and he takes a step back and he literally launches into the right following right hook, which may or may not land have landed. because uh, Micah was clearly off balance and it pretty much looked incapacitated after the first left hook official. Uh, yeah, well, look, uh, talking about uh, that first knockdown, what I saw, I tried to, to, to pay my all my attention to, to that moment. And uh, in the seconds leading to that knockdown, uh, like you, you, you are saying, he was measuring him. Uh, he tried a couple of times to, to measure him with his lead hand and throw a very wide right hook around his guard. And like you said, um, Micah, he, he was staying there. He was not moving away. Which which was a terrible decision, but then the yeah the I I do think that a punch that really dropped him was the left hook, which was very short because after throwing mm-hmm. a couple of those right very wild and wide right hooks, uh, he put his right glove on uh, Micah's head over Micah's head to control it and then threw a very, very short left hook that was not looking really powerful, but landed uh, straight on his chin. And then it was, in my opinion, it, it was kind of delayed reaction because after landing that left hook, John uh, Real Casimero tried, uh, went once more for that uh, lead, head, lead hand control and the right hook. But what I personally saw was that right hook just uh, just grazing uh, or hitting uh, Micah's guard while he was already off balance and uh, going down. That's my idea. So what I'm trying to say is that I didn't saw that that last right hook landing on Micah at all. Maybe on his guard, but he was already out of balance and falling down. Mike was pretty much done after the um, that sequence. He got up in survival mode, retreated back. John Real, as you can imagine, a predator just on him, ready to uh, tear the carcass off the bones. Um, referee just pretty much called a halt. There was a few more punches landed, an uppercut. Uh, um, yeah, a brief, a brief war, but it was exciting for the um, for its duration. Um, yeah, it gives John Real a nice little, a nice little showcase introduction to U.S. audiences. Um, it's always nice to get a knockout or a stoppage victory like that uh, on a, on a, on a card which is being pretty much watched by pretty much everyone, every boxing fan around the world. So, you know, the Manny Pacquiao affiliation. Um, was good for John Riel. Now, hopefully, hopefully they can get this World Boxing Super Series uh, winner, Nail Inouye and John Riel Casemiro in the ring because we want to see that free belt showdown. Um Maybe a little bit harder with John Riel's PBC connection now. I don't know. The the current situation between top rank and 
in the PBC or, or, or MP promotions. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. Um, Casemiro did express some. I don't know whether you heard it, official. He was talking about maybe relinquishing the t the belt already after just one defense and moving up to 122 pounds. Oh yeah, no, I did not hear it. Uh, hear it at all. This is the first time me hearing of it. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I don't know. I have. I've got no. No. Nothing concrete to authenticate what, what I heard there, but it was just some ramblings I heard. Mm -hmm, I see channels. A couple of individuals who I I spoke to in the boxing community mentioned that, but I I can't verify. I I don't know. But I wouldn't be surprised. Um, uh, me neither. Plus, yeah, I mean, look, John Real Casimero, he's not that big. He he's pretty small for this weight, but I know that he's. Uh, I heard he's training hard and trying to always stay in shape for. Uh, in order to 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 be, you know, to be able to box in this division and. Uh, I heard that uh, Pacquiao and his team got him more serious to take to take his career more serious. So that's nice, but I don't know, man. How 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 would it look if he if he moves up another weight? But another thing that I just want to to address quickly is that yeah, the the, the recent uh, the recent fights that PBC and Top Rank were able to to put together you know, can leave us feel, you know, like that that showdown between him and Inoue is possible. But on the other hand, I'm just wondering how terrible job Top Rank did, in my opinion, by by letting uh, both John Real Castimero and the other guys like uh, Donaire and uh, Ubali. Okay, Ubali, he was already fighting on Showtime uh, on Pacquiao's undercard, but but so so John Riel has uh, connections with Pacquiao as well, so that move to Showtime is not surprising, but I was hoping for Top Rank to secure all, all three of them probably in order to have uh, the opponents for uh, for Inoue, you know, so I'm kind of surprised that they they let them go that easily to Showtime. Yeah, yeah, kind of the unpredictability about what's going to happen next. You know, we don't need all all divisions in boxing under some demarcation of television networks dictating fights you know it's happened for the marquee divisions for so long the middleweights and the welterweight divisions and the heavyweight divisions but if it starts impacting bantamweight and flyweight as well which it's it's very highly highly possible um yeah that that that'll be very disappointing because part of their attraction to boxing fans is the flexibility and and fights can be made a lot easier as well, given the the corresponding monetary values that are attached to those fights. So it's not it's not complicated fights to make, but 
it's now becoming more complicated with fighters signing third-party deals for international broadcasters but maintaining their registration, say, with Ohashi or Tekken in Japan, etc. So, um, yeah, I don't know who else he's got at 118. He can fight in the uh, maybe, maybe uh, Luis Neri. Uh, hold on, has, hasn't he moved up to one? Is to he I, I'm not even sure, but I think so. I think that Neri is at around 122. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, right I now. think you're right. Yeah. I was, uh, Luis Neri was one of the fighters that I picked back in 2016 as a major prospect. But my, my, um, respect for him has, has almost evaporated. Um, Clearly doesn't respect boxing, has been on a free ride to be taking Zil Patrol and, and whatever diuretics to make weight for so long. Has got a lot of boxing ability, but um, no, no, I'm not even, not too interested in that. But anyway, we'll move from that fight, uh, 118. Uh, I'm not sure if he's 118 or 122, but um, Casemiro, after that official, I, um, I pretty much just saw the the main the main header off, off the first pay-per-view. I didn't see anything in between the Casemiro fight and the, um, the middleweight championship fight. Uh, you mean uh, in between uh, the fights in between uh, Charlo yeah. and Charlo Rosario? Uh, yeah, I saw them. If you want, I can address them quickly. <clears throat> okay, so Roman versus Piano was an extremely good fight. Roman, he started it well, you know. Uh, he was waiting to, to get Piano into that mid-range for, uh, for his explosive combos, but really quickly from the second or the third round on, uh, Piano figured out that he would need to switch ranges, and uh, he was doing uh, an outstanding job of uh, using the lateral movement, changing uh, the ranges, uh, going from mid to long range, back and forth, and uh, countering, catching uh, Roman, who was chasing him without uh, much success. Okay, Roman was still... Um, landing uh, his combos, a lot of body shots, but so so did Piano, and I think that Piano uh, was looking much better in those middle rounds, and he was shooting some long-range um, hooks and uppercuts uh, while uh, moving laterally and uh, stepping back. Uh, so yeah, Roman once more showed the, the difficulties to to close the ring. I think that he kind of he, his footwork is at one same pace the whole fight. Later in the championship rounds, he he did better won the rounds. At the very end, at the last second of the fight, he scored a knockdown that was not recognized by the referee. Uh, I don't know why. But yeah, he, he's pretty exciting, but pretty much like uh, in his last fight against MJ, 
um, I saw that good footwork, counterpunching, uh, changing ranges, switching ranges uh, gets him in trouble, and uh, his his footwork stays uh, at pretty much one same. Uh, gear during the whole fight and he just he's just hoping to either uh, easily uh, to be allowed by his opponents to to move in to to step to mid-range or uh, wait for for his opponents to step to his mid-range in order for him to throw his combos uh, so yeah, but anyways, it was a wonderful, very exciting fight, and uh, you would not be wrong at all if you go and watch it because everybody would enjoy it. Trust me. Now, um, I'll try to keep it short. Uh, the, the other fight that Luis Neri had against uh, the other Mexican Alameda. Well, watching that fight, uh, okay, Neri, he's. Um, he was landing punches from the start, but Alameda was just so gun shy. But Luis Neri was not looking good. Now the commentators were saying throughout the whole fight that uh, it was Neri saying that he wanted to try out something something new. And I'm okay if uh, when fighters are trying to do that, but I'm. At this point, I'm really wondering: Is it really him himself who wants, who wanted to to try out some some new things, or was it just another case of the Reynoso brothers destroying another fighter's career, or like kind of like they they forced? Um, what's the other Mexican's name? You're a, you're a big fan of his, uh, the one who who lost to to Loma in the Olympics. Sorry, I'm not. I'm not able to, to recall his name, but the one that was supposed to, to fight uh, Burchelt, the the Mexican guy that's also being trained by Rhinosos. Well, kind of. I felt the same way. Instead of instead of uh, improving uh, Pantera Neri and uh, making him better. At the style he was already using, meaning maybe uh, trying to make him more compact, uh, more compact, more uh, precise, uh, accurate pressure fighter, or uh, anything like that. He was trying to box, and uh, he was not, he was not really looking really good at it. And now the last thing about that fight I want to mention is that. Uh, here and there, up till the the tenth round, here and there, Alameda, his opponent, had some really good sequences, but he was not opening up. But from that tenth round on, he showed how every underdog should always fight against the the big names or on the big cards. Uh, from the tenth round on, he finally started fighting like he had nothing to lose. Instead, instead of acting uh, like uh, like the underdogs usually act against uh, the top level opponents, uh, instead of being a punching bag, he finally let his hands go, and from the tenth round on, he was absolutely outclassing. Um, and um, I'm not exaggerating, in my opinion. He was really outclassing uh, Pantera Neri. Okay, uh, 
I think it was the last round. Uh, uh, Neri really pressured him and landed a lot of punches. But still, in those last three rounds, uh, Alameda was looking amazing uh, with his footwork, with his counter punching. He was reminding me like uh, of uh, maybe a lower output version of uh, Prima Quadras or something like that. I don't know, but he was looking really amazing in those last three rounds. That's about it. Very disappointing from Almeida. You're fighting for your inaugural world championship. You clearly demonstrated that if you open up rather than being a little bit too preoccupied with his jab throughout the fight once he once he started throwing uh, you know two southpaws once he was throwing his his left hand as well left crosses um they were connecting so clearly he had the ability of of landing the punches but for whatever reason he was so reticent maybe reticent of Neri's power i'm not sure but um yeah, he must be he must be at home kicking himself. Because if he had left it all in the ring and opened up from maybe not reckless abandon, but just open up your combinations, open up your power punches a little bit from the mid-rounds. Um clearly the talent and the ability were there. The punch accuracy was there as well. Um yeah. I don't know, official. Um, maybe the um, just looked like a, a situation that they knew that you know Almeida was very kind of an in in the in the shell type of fighter, and you know they just wanted to put another belt on Luis Neri as well. Pretty ironic, I think it's the WBC, given that he's got a very checkered past with them back in Japan with Shinsuke Yamanaka and. The expulsion of of Louis Neri from fighting in Japan as well, but the WBC, they you know they'll do deals with rapists, armed murderers. You know they don't they've got no morals. Um, <laughs> it's all about the dollar signs for them. Um, yes. There's no standards. There's no ethics. No compliance with them. So you know they'll dance with the devil. Oh, absolutely, they would, they would. But uh, just one quick point. It was funny to me how how the commentating team was uh, bigging up Luis Neri and uh, bigging up his uh, his victories in Japan. Um, so I don't know the commentators' names. I I always fail to recognize them when they're talking. But anyways, one of them was saying. Uh, he he beat uh, the legendary Japanese fighter Yamanaka in uh, in Japan, and the other followed it up, and not only once but twice. But <laughs> that's that's all they they said about those two fights in uh, in Japan. <laughs> they never mentioned him failing, you know, to to make weight and the other things. <laughs> it was yeah, just he, funny. he was yeah he was taking one of the the family of substances from the Zil, Zilpatrol to make weight, which is, is one of the best fat burners out there. A lot, a lot of Mexican athletes take that substance. Um, 
but then coming significantly heavier for the rematch as well. I think he missed weight by about five, six pounds, something like that. Um, Yamanaka, I don't know why he still wanted to proceed with the belt, but he took a beating in the second round even more expeditiously in the first fight. But um, anyway, um, that's a, a horrible past. You know, Yamanaka didn't, didn't deserve to go out like that. Um, all right. Uh, we also had another title fight I didn't see. Uh, Brandon Figueroa was fighting up against somebody. I don't even recall his opponent's name. That's yeah, how, that was he, my he, level of interest in the fight. <laughs> exactly, and mine as well, because I do not recall the name of his opponent neither. And uh, guess what? I missed the fight too. <laughs> okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah, let's, let's just... Um, no point fucking around. Let's just get to the main event of the first installment or whatever, the first part of the elongated pay-per-view. WBC world champion Jamal Cholo, who received it without even fighting anybody, uh, courtesy of Canelo Alvarez being... Uh, can we say upgraded to franchise champion, even though that build is absolutely ridiculous, given all of the stipulations and the fact that you can't even lose the belt. Uh, a bit of a circus. Yeah, yeah it makes a mockery in it. Now we're talking we're talking about so it's so it's effectively it's a euphemism, it's the WBC regular belt. That's what it is now. Um what are these guys doing to boxing? Um, anyway, he was up against um, a voluntary defense, if I'm not mistaken. And people have really got to start um, looking at the way these cards are scheduled and stacked up. You know, Sergei Dermenchenko, I think, was specifically selected for the bout because Jamal Charlo who's had a, you know, a very, a very comfortable ride up to weight divisions, being gifted the belt initially by beating, you know, Cornelius Bondage, um, who was absolutely washed when they fought for the IBF World Championship. Now, the, now the IBF have got a, a reputation for being very strictly by the book. But surely they should have made some dispensations and allowed Cornelius to come in the ring with his leather chains and whips to give him at least 10% of a chance against the Charlo. Um, you know, even a Cornelius in his prime was, well, not a not an elite fighter. Um, so that was the start of Jamal's um, relatively comfortable reign at 154 pounds came up against the julian williams you know that was definitely a good victory um moved up to 160 pounds and he's had he's had difficulties certainly with southpaw so i think he was actually glad to be fighting an orthodox fighter um sergey dermianchenko a pretty 
pretty decent amateur, but a lot of the 380-odd victories were at state and regional level. I'd say maybe less than, you know, less than sort of 10, 15 percent were elite fighters for all of the research that I've been able to do in his background and try and identify any significant fighters that he might have beaten in the amateurs. There are definitely some elite. Um, but um, he was coming off two defeats, Daniel Jacobs and Gennady Golovkin. Um, so a good time for him to be elevated in his third campaign to become a world champion. You know, really was desperate to join his Ukrainian um, stablemates, you know, Alexander Usyk, Wojtek and uh, Vasily, who all became, you know, were very well, very decorated in, in professionally, Vasily at, you know, three different weights. Usyk now campaigned at a second weight category after becoming undisputed and, you know, Vojtek becoming WBC champion as well, having unfortunately retired. So Sergey was, he had the hunger, no doubt about it. Um, but um, against Jamal Charlo official, um, my God, did he take a beating in that fight. He got absolutely pieced up pretty much throughout the fight. All of the effective tactics that he was utilizing against Gennady Golovkin. He decided just to abandon all of them, you know, all the, the 43 low blows and the rabbit punches and the kidney <laughs> yeah. punches and the elbows and the holding the head and hitting. Um, he thought, you know what, let me, let me, let me jettison everything that worked. Let me not even fight at a range in which I'm not being significantly disadvantaged because Jamal Charlo's height, his length, and his weight were highly significant in this fight official. Um, he was significantly the bigger fighter. I was quite surprised by the, the height discrepancy in the ring. But you can tell from their rehydration, you know, Maul just looked, he looked... I'm not. I'm not even going to speculate what his weight is going to be, but he was. He was a light heavyweight there. Um, he controlled the outside. Jamal, Jamal Chola was landing. He throws a very fast ball jab. You know, there's not a great deal of distance from his armpits to his bicep tricep area when he's throwing the punch. So it's real quick zip on the punch. You know, he was camped in a position where he knew Deminchenko would just come into that range, pick him off with the jab at will. Sergei, who already had a very questionable defense coming into the bout, we know that because he's a very high, high activity puncher. So when you're opening up, in, and he's a, a combination puncher, so there's always going to be gaps for him to be hit. But defensively, even when he has his guard up and he's trying to balance him up and down, trying to use a bit of head movement, he still gets hit because he doesn't roll with the punches very well, nor does he try and slip the punches successfully. Very easy target. Um, 
had absolutely no interest of trying to cut the distance with his own jab. Um, a very notorious slow starter, so he needed to start a, a hell of a lot faster. Um, I thought he was going to try and turn Charlo a lot more, especially to the right, to try to try and take advantage of Jamal elongating his his stride so much, in which he can only really rotate from the rip from the hips. So if you do that and pivot off to the right, then you're effectively taking his right hand out of the equation. But Sergei decided he didn't want to do that. No, he wanted to. He wanted Jamal Charlo to give him, you know, a couple of new tattoos under his eyes, um, you know, and rearrange that face. Um, he took hellacious punches, uppercuts, uppercuts with both hands, straight right hands. Um, he didn't really, he didn't really make any indentations until the middle after round five, in which he was able to get close and land double double left hooks to the body, which was working, and he definitely hurt Jamal to the body as well. Shorten up those punches, try and get underneath the long jab, and then land those hooks. And they and that was working, and maybe he reeled off a, a few of the middle rounds, but Jamal was able to recover from any any onslaught, any sustained momentum that he managed to gather through some of the middle stages. But Jamal always had an answer, certainly from a counter-punching sense. Um, he was just really trying to pick a perfect punch with that that lead uppercut. Certainly from, it landed the left with his left hand very well with the lead hand, but he was looking, he has more power in his right hand with that uppercut. Uh, he was really just waiting for you know, Sergei just to dip into one of them um, and connect. And he did, but Sergei did show some great, he showed some tremendous whiskers. You know, his legs buckled a little bit three or four times. Um, he recovered, carried on fighting. But tactically and strategically official, he just, he, um, he just fought completely the wrong fight. Um, not surprised, um, and he took a hell of a beating in the fight. Oh yes, he did, man. I mean, one thing is sure: the when you take a look at punches, both of them were landing. The last night, uh, Charlo was landing the harder ones on con a consistent basis. Uh, I mean, I have with me uh, just uh, right before the this show tonight. I was able to finally rewatch the fight. I downloaded it in HD, uh, and uh, I scored it. Uh, watching it live, first of all, keep in mind, just like you, I was watching it early in the morning. I mean, okay, that fight. Oh, first of all, that card had a really weird structure because it was a double header that was uh, separated into two mini cards, one uh, led by Charlo and Dervianchenko and the other but by the other Charlo and Rosario. But anyways, yeah, talking of Dervianchenko, there, there, there were... It was clear for me to see that he was staying too much at 
mid-range for no good reason. And it's too bad that he was not trying as hard. I mean, <laughs> not trying hard, it sounds really bad because... Um, he showed a lot of heart and uh, chin and balls uh, not tonight, last night. But uh, I'm speaking uh, strategic-wise, you know, uh, what he was supposed to do, he was not doing as much of it, just like you mentioned. First of all, uh, he was not moving and bouncing on his toes as much as he used to do. And uh, he looked really... Uh, uh, really, I know. was I was wondering with that official. I was thinking, has has Sergey come into the fight straight from the building side because he's clearly wearing <laughs> his steel toe cap boots because he just can't move at all. <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. And now a part of it maybe maybe due to something that Charlo was doing. He was going doing some really great things and i'll mention them later but yeah not only that he he was flat-footed yeah he was uh, going forward and trying to jump in but for the most of the times or for the most of the time he was flat-footed and not, not moving around if he at least if he was at least flat-footed at short range well where he does pretty well and like you said he was constantly landing the body shots but not as much as in his previous fights but no, he was staying at the end of Charlo's punches there, flat-footed. Um, so yeah, it was really worrying for me to, to see that because anytime he started bouncing on his feet from the out, um, just out of Charlo's range, he was doing really well, confusing Charlo, making it difficult for Charlo to, to find the right distance. And... Uh, uh, Whenever he was bouncing on the outside of Charlo's reach, uh, every time it was easy for him to to step in, you know, to come underneath uh, Charlo's punches, which were missing because, just like I said, uh, Charlo was having difficulties to time him when he was moving around and bouncing on his feet and fainting along the way. Along the way, um, the next thing is, yeah, you already mentioned it, the angles. Yeah, he was not moving as much as I was expecting him to move, laterally neither. Uh, but a big part of the reason for it may be what Charlo was doing, because, look, I uploaded on my own um, channel my prediction video, which was very long, 142, 43 minutes long, and I managed to upload it just maybe 10, 15 minutes because, uh, before the start, start of that fight. And uh, I was saying the, what uh, what Charlo should do, and I think that he picked the things that worked for uh, Jacobs against the Ryanchenko, but also from from what was Golovkin effective with against the Ryanchenko, and what I mean by that, uh, what Jacobs was doing on the inside. He knew how, how to neutralize the angles. He was uh, using the lateral movement and ducking and uh, holding the Ryanchenko with, uh, with his left hand to negate uh, his angles on the inside. But then 
in order to prevent him from uh, stepping into his range, he did something that Golovkin was doing uh, before before the fight. The last uh, the last week, I was talking about how I don't think uh, Charles' jab is going to be effective because all I saw him up till now doing with his jab is just. Uh, throwing a jab and then uh, a right hand and uh, there was a lot of uh, big time gaps in between those two punches but i only saw him a few times hooking off the jab and but now he was he was pumping the jab the whole night the entire night and he was hooking off the jab very often he was uh, jabbing and throwing a lead uppercut like you mentioned very often and so it was that volume that he was putting in front of uh, Derianchenko throwing it uh, right uh, where um, Derianchenko was supposed to step in when he was stepping towards Charlo is what uh, made uh, Derianchenko much more hesitant to to step in freely you know uh, so but anyways in that uh, breakdown and prediction video that I did last night everything that I mentioned uh, Charlo to my big surprise was able to do it because I said what I think he should do with his style and the way he fights what he should do but I was not really expecting him to do most of those things because I I was rarely seeing him doing it in his other fights against the, the lesser opponents. So I do think that I'm giving, first of all, I want to give a huge respect to his corner and his coach because he definitely saw what uh, what Charlo should, should be doing in this fight and uh, he made him execute it almost perfectly. Official, a bit of a, a rhetorical question, but... Uh... Mm-hmm. If 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 you if you in your previous fight are warned six times for low blows, and everybody's opinion is kind of subjective on how many blows he landed, but for me it was over forty he landed against Golovkin. You know, you guys can tally your own or or even contest that, but for me it's it's not easy to differentiate between an illegal between the legal and an illegal blow but the point is mute um how can you go in the space of a fight from landing so many blows to absolutely no low blows whatsoever and any of the roughhouse tactics that we saw against Golovkin? um kind of strange isn't it uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess he knew the <laughs> definite B side in this fight. It's not like that uh, he wasn't B, uh, the B side uh, in the Golovkin fight, but uh, however, we should not forget that it was the fight sanctioned by the New York Commission that that was in uh, in uh, Derianchenko's hometown, you know, in his backyard. And uh, he was really watching that fight. He was really allowed to do a lot of dirty, dirty things. But to be honest with you, corruption, I saw him trying some of those as well in this fight against Charlo. Yeah. But yeah. To a much lesser extent, maybe not uh, 
the low blows, I do not recall them, but I know him uh, holding and hitting, uh, um, pressing his uh, his uh, elbows on uh, Charles' neck and pushing him down and trying to hit him, but to, to a much lesser effect than, than he did against Golovkin, definitely. Yeah, I, I was kind of hoping for a for a, a vicious low blow um, <laughs> to his knees for five minutes, you know, you know, so he can with his brother looking on as well in order that the fox drama playing at. But um, um, yeah, I, I think Sergey maybe got a maybe got a. A bit of a blessing in disguise to get this opportunity, but um, Charla needed a bit more substance on his resume, so it was a, a perfect opponent at a perfect time. Um, the only question was whether Derminchenko would get knocked out, but uh, a very uh, for me, that was a very easy fight to predict, you know, Charla, you know, winning on points. Um, he definitely. Definitely was better than I, I I've seen him, even better than what he was in the in the Julian Williams fight. Um, but he's there's still so many deficiencies that a fighter can exploit. You know, if 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 a washed up Austin Trout can outbox him at long range after five six rounds, you know, by maintaining that distance, and now. With the Matvey Korobov fight now, what 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 a lot of people don't understand is that Korobov was out of the ring for a year and a half, and when they started their training camps, he was already ten pounds heavier. I've gone back and looked at all of the timelines, the starting weight, and then he had to lose another four, so he had to lose fourteen pounds more than Jamal Charlo given that Willie Monroe had bizarrely decided to take um, properties to improve his breathing but not put them on any of his doping regulations form despite uh, being under the tutelage uh, of, of one of the most famous strength and conditioners who, in its second nature, Willie Monroe was a was a sacrifice because the Charles had both missed their clean boxing program tests. That's what that was all about. It was designed to deflect attention away from both Charlos. When people like Paddy Barnes, who were in the same pool group, were subsequently tested and passed, as did Tony Harrison on the CBT, but the Charlos were never retested. So. That that was that bizarre situation when Korobov stepped in. Now Korobov was was winning all of pretty much all of the early part of the fights, but he his left straight left hands began to dry up because of those aforementioned reasons. Being out of the ring, you in half, and now he's not been on. He's not had many fights going twelve rounds as well, and given that he had to lose more weight. So he was pretty much fatigued after the, the middle stages of the fight. And that is what allowed Jamal Charlo to come back into the fight and dominate the entire second half of the fight. To me, I didn't see Korobov winning that fight. Uh, he, he was struggling right at the end. He was fatigued. It wasn't any adjustments that Jamal was making. Maybe, 
maybe curtailing the size of his stance a little bit and getting underneath the punches, but he was able to see those left hands at will because Korobov was significantly slowing down and his activity was slowing down as well. Um, so kind of superficial with the way he's had 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 some some victories, but um, anyway, he's he gets a comfortable a comfortable unanimous points decision victory. Um, what does he do next, official? Um, Hundred and sixty pounds. Demetrius Andrade is on the zone. We don't know what Canelo Alvarez is doing, what weight division he's fighting at. Caleb Pontes, Isaac 68, right? Yes. Um, Danny Jacobs, I believe, has already moved up to 168 because that would have been a good fight. There is some previous beef between the two. Um, out of the ring anyway. So that would have been an... That could have been an interesting fight. Um, yeah, a few minutes ago. Kind of a weak 160-pound division at the moment, official. I do not like it neither, man. And uh, by the way, I do think that Jacobs should be with the zone, right? So here goes that fight as well. It's kind of hard to tell what he's... He signed a very lucrative deal... Um, and that was one of the reasons why both Billy Joe Saunders and, and Callum Smith were very pissed off with Dizone when they were clearly lowballed uh, for during negotiations for a fight with Canelo Alvarez, who, as we covered a, a couple of weeks ago, wasn't prepared <laughs> for any for any reduction in, in what he thinks is a straight. 365 over whatever contracted deal we had, but it doesn't matter. Um, I'm not sure what Maul is going to do next. Um, uh, I can't even, not even looked at the rankings of the WBC. Um, but um, no need to uh, ponder on that one as well. We'll, we'll go on to second pay-per-view. Um, you've covered all of the interim bouts that happened beforehand. We'll go to yeah. Sorry, just one quick point. Uh, yeah, uh, you earlier mentioned great points about uh, you had great points about Charlos and uh, their trip to Thailand and uh, <laughs> the the guy who who got uh, William Monroe. And yeah, by the way, uh, as long as the scorecard, as far as the score scorecard goes, uh, upon rewatching it, I had Derevchenko winning uh, four or five rounds. So yeah, rewatching it, he, I figured out he was much more, uh, less effective than I thought. So watching it live, and uh, by the way, the way Charlo was looking fresh throughout the whole fight. Uh, it also looks like uh, like he was he had a couple of more of trips to Thailand with his brother or something like that. But yeah, anyway, go on. Yeah, these guys were out. You know, they had that 
They had all of their teeth bleached up nicely for the pay per view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll go on to younger brother, um, Jamel Charlo, defending his WBC 154-pound championship up against Unifor champion Jason Rosario from the Dominican Republic, having beaten Julian Williams in in his previous bout, and you know kind of a sensational victory uh, for me it was anyway uh, what did he take the WBA and the IBF from from Julian um, so a free belt unification yeah you've got to give him credit you know why not strike while the iron's hot if you've got two belts you're on a little roll even though your boxing acumen and your your resume doesn't really support that um, official there was a lot of hype going into Jason Rosario and, and the potential that he had to cause an upset in this fight. But in all of the discussions we were having beforehand, I was, correct me if I'm wrong, I was adamant from the outside that Jason Rosario was a hype job. Um, his power was significantly overrated. I'd seen him fired up against a, a welterweight who'd moved up to 154, Jamonte Clark, who was even taller than Rosario. Uh, at one stage, Rosario knocked him out the ring. Uh, Jamonte Clark did a somersault official, and he kindly, and he um, just calmly proceeded back into the ring, you know. Um, yeah, I've been watching a few tapes from Nigel Benn and Gerald McClellan, I think. Um, and he was able to back to box on the back foot up against Rosario, who is working progress. I'll give him that because when he when he was coming from Dominican Republic, and he the first fight he fought in the United States was against the Jamaican Gallimore. And back then, official, what he what he what Rosario tended to do, which I had picked up on. For the initial, for the initial two rounds, he would he would actually stay in the middle of the ring, not move around a lot, and he'd use not bad lead hand control just to parry jabs off his opponent. He'll parry, parry, deflect him away. Um, but against Jamonte Clark for for ten rounds, he did not show he didn't throw a single conventional jab. So there was no fundamentals to his game at that kind of raw stage in his career. It was all about lining up Jamonte, you know, fighting on the back foot for his for a big straight right hand. It was unbelievably well, unbelievably telegraphed what he was going to do. He'd launch into the right hand. He put pretty much everything into it. One of those fighters who will take punches just to land his own. All right, that's understandable. There's kind of a cavalier, aggressive style that we don't mind. But when you don't have the punch resistance to facilitate what you're trying to do offensively, and you've got no defense to back it up, uh, it's a very, very dangerous strategy. Um, but eventually, he, he he started throwing his jab a bit better, developed a left hook, 
and a not not a bad left hook against Julius Williams. He was frying, you know, frying a jab, quite a fast jab as well, firing some left hooks and the 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 lead right hand uppercut, which led the demise to to finishing Williams, was an absolutely beautiful punch, picked perfectly, and he actually fired it from from quite a long way out, which is one of the hardest punches to do. Because clearly with those uppercuts, you've got to use the ground, you know. The, the ground is your leverage when you're when you're firing those uppercuts, but to fire it from long range, and he's quite a tall guy as well. That was a hell of a punch to throw. So it was work in progress. I definitely saw some improvements in him. But the Nate Gallimore fight told me that if if you're getting floored three times by a B minus C plus type of fighter who's not bad, but nothing special, then you're not an elite fighter and you clearly don't have the punch resistance. Now Jamel Charlo is has, has kind of fluctuated between styles. He early on in his career, he was very much a boxer. And even when he fought for his first world championship up against uh, you know Julian Jackson's son. He was still boxing very much on the outside. Um, different from his brother. Both of them are, they have kind of same sequences of punches they throw, but the way they throw them is very different. Jamel, tight, Jamel loves to pivot out, as he always does, pivot out and fire that left hook just to get out of the, the specific arc. Uh, Jamal doesn't do that at all. So Jamel is, is, is a lot more of an athlete on his feet, given that he used to fight as a boxer before. But after the Julian Jacks, after the, the sorry, Julian's son, I, I don't recall his name, um, where the guy turned and and, and and the referee, you know, decided to end the bout as, as Jackson was indicated that he didn't want to continue after being hurt, correct decision. Uh, he began to become a bit of a more bit of more of a puncher and just landing knockout after knockout, first round execution of a you know Erickson Lubin and then he fought Charles Hadley and a couple of other guys as well, kind of washed up Austin Trout as well. So he's been not really a, not really a star-studded you know action-packed at CV, but. He was getting knockouts, so um, so coming into the fight, I felt that Jamal Jamel Charlo's boxing ability and his punching ability, and the key for me was his defensive ability, were all significantly better than Rosario's. I knew Rosario would would have opportunities to land the right hand because if if Jamel was going to come forward, then then clearly Rosario would have the opportunities, but. Um, it was actually Rosario's left hooks, which was more effective than his right hands. You know, Jamel was able to roll the punches a lot better. Um, landed a very early knock knockdown in the fight, um, and if that was an indication that the fight was over, then for me, um, it was kind of a foregone conclusion what transpired after. But Rosario came back, showed some resilience, um, had some reasonable good rounds um was kind of walking down jamel as well uh loading up with the right hand 
but it was the left hook that I felt that was working a lot better and at times his jab as well. Jamel is just defensively a lot better. He has his hands up much higher than his older brother Jamal, who carries the hands a lot lower. So Jamel is is has very good fundamentals. Um he's he's known as the Iron Man for you know for a reason, and it maybe is his punch resistance and his durability and his toughness over the 12. Um, after that, he was able to pick almost single punches at will. Um, Rosario very easily capitulated during the middle stages of the fight, uh, was having good bursts, but he wasn't, he wasn't able to hurt uh, Jamel Charlo, apart from I think might have been the fifth round where some of his body work may have buzzed up Jamel a little bit official, but um, no significant headshots. Um, didn't force Jamel to you know vary his tactics anymore. Um, and eventually, you know Jamel, you know picking him off with um, you know a left hand to the body, you know. One of the bizarrest knockouts I've seen. Um, you know, Jamal managed to knock down Julian Williams with a jab. Now Jamel does it, but knocks out um, Jason Rosario with a you know a left hand to the body. Kind of a kind of a a bit of an anticlimax the way that fight uh, finished out official. Yes, exactly. And that stoppage was really weird, uh, weird looking. I mean, uh, yeah, that jab that was thrown first upstairs, then downstairs, but throwing it downstairs, it got partially blocked and deviated by by Charles' yeah. right elbow, and yeah. then ended up on um, on Rosario's uh, belt line. Yeah, it was weird, and uh, I get people. Thinking it was a dive, I'm not. I'm not sure about it myself. But anyways, we were both both of us, you and me, we were expecting the yeah. fight to, to finish by Charlo stopping him, because yeah, like you said, he he has a much better defense, and we were just waiting for for we knew the the opportunity for Charlo to throw either a left hook or a right hand would be there at one point and he was using them now I saw I saw uh, the fight just be differently I thought that uh, Rosario was winning comfortably all the rounds that he didn't uh, get knocked down and uh, yeah I, I saw him in fact uh, hurting a bit Charlo a couple of times with uh, with body punches, which were really good. Okay, he was landing the uppercuts upstairs, but not really moving uh, Charlo too much. Nothing extremely serious. So yeah, but you know what? Uh, watching him against Gilmore or whatever the, the Jamaican's name was, uh, yeah, 
be- because people were asking me what do I think about Rosario's chin just a day or two ago and I was saying it's clear to me that he doesn't have a great chin because the way uh, and I think that uh, not only Charlo but from what I, I was able to, to remember from the Gilmer fight Gilmer too was landing uh, his uh, left hook on the top of his dome and making Rosario lose their uh, lose his legs, and anytime he gets hit on the dome, he he loses his legs, uh, his legs turns into noodles. So I was telling people that I w- wasn't thinking that. It was clear to me that he doesn't have a sturdy chin, but I. I was wrong when I told him I don't think he has a glass screen neither. And I think that I thought he doesn't have a glass screen was because uh, the American's existence really lowered my expectations when it comes to fighting chins. So to, to me, it's uh, it's the lowest level a chin, fighter's chin could possibly be. So... I figured out, okay, his chin is not at Khan's level, but yeah, rather, rather. You know, official, um, people were too fixated on Rosario's perceived heavy-handed nature. And when you mentioned his previous fights and his lack, his, his deficiencies and his lack of boxing ability, you always hear the um, the phrase "styles makes fights." No, styles makes flights. Makes fights is just a cliche that these neolithically incompetent boxing channels just randomly spit out to try and justify a scenario of a fight that is against their expectations, because the manner in which the fight plays out it 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 pretty much short circuits their neural receptors they quite can't understand how it happens nor do they have the uh, the, the sort of iq to kind to kind of decipher you know why a particular fight has ended in the way maybe it's not an aberration maybe the evidence is clearly there in in in, in the in the fighters you know previous fights against much weaker opposition so uh it's not always styles makes fights at all it's just a case of um certain traits a fighter has which not all fighters are blessed with power not not all fighters have a, a tremendous chin it's it's rare to have a fighter who encompasses all of those attributes simultaneously you know so not even the elite fighters in history have had that as well. So it's how you how you how you compensate for your adjustments. Now, if you've got no chin and you're just taking punches to land punches, then clearly that is a a deformed strategy. Because unless you're one hundred percent confident that your opponent is going to get knocked out then why are you marching forward with no defense, just trying to land right hands, yeah, a little few left hooks? I mean, have you seen Jamel Charlo been wobbled around like a noodle in his previous fights? No. Have you been... Has he been knocked out before? No. Not at all, yeah. 
you know, Tony Harrison, I you know, I don't care who says what, is one of the most skillful boxers in any of the 17 weight categories. Because for a fighter over six feet, you know, he can fight at long range, beautiful, you know, very good straight punches. But Harrison's problem is that he, there is a trade-off between activity and accuracy. Harrison would rather go for accuracy, so therefore his activity is not there. So you have opportunities against him. You can move around a little bit. Um, but Harrison can also fight moving laterally. He's, I've seen him knock out people actually moving laterally around the ring. Normally you've got to plant your feet. You've got to stop and connect, plant your feet as Rosario clearly has to, but Harrison doesn't have to do that. And we saw against Jamel Charlo in the in in the in the their excellent rematch. You know, Harrison can fight on the inside, and that left hand he fires to the body is an absolutely beautiful punch. So skillfully, he has he, he can fight at all ranges. A very very skillful fighter, but there's there's as I mentioned, there's problems of activity, there's problems of punch resistance, and there's problems of stamina as well. So. And, I, and Harrison doesn't always lose his concentration as well, so he doesn't manage those deficiencies too well, which is why he ends up getting knocked out as well. So not a smart strategy by Rosario at all. You know, Julian Williams clearly didn't have a chin as well, so that was kind of a, I felt that was a, a very fortunate victory. Williams got a little bit too aggressive trying to come forward, trying to actually walk Rosario down as well. Uh, big mistake. Um so why, why do you want to do that when he was boxing very well on the back foot during the initial stages, like landing combinations? So not a great deal of IQ at 154 pounds, official. You know, the belts are getting swapped around a lot. So kind of exciting, you know, the little merry-go-round round robbing, you know. But as no fighters have been able to establish their dominance, it clearly shows that, you know, everybody's pretty much at roughly the same sort of skill level um, Jamel Charlo now, you know, has avenged his defeat, has all three belts. Um, Patrick Tipshed, I think, may be the other belt holder. Uh, Brazilian fighter, who has also been knocked out as well against a. No, that was it. Hold on, was that a. Is he the 150. Yeah, I think it's the WBO belt, if I'm not mistaken, official. Uh, I, I cannot remember, but I think so. So. Um, yeah, but anyways, the division is just like you said, uh, there is no no clear top dog in that division. It, it, it can be kind of interesting division because... Uh, kind of we we don't know exactly what to, to expect from them and kind of everybody has a shot at it it's in it's competitive in that regard but it's not a high class division those fighters are not not really great fighters but but it's a division with with a couple of very good fighters you know where where Almost anybody, anyone can can beat anyone. Yeah, the the situation we have officially is that Ericsson Lubin is now 
moved into contention for one of Jamel's Charlo's belts. Now we we saw what happened to him when they fought previously. You know, a vicious knockout very early on. So his punch resistance is 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 not very good as well. I've seen him hurt numerous times in in bouts, and he was very very cagey and defensively conscious in his in his um in his bout which was quite recently as well now fighting in that particular style against Jamel um up against somebody who hits harder than you it, it, it's not a bad idea because you don't want to be trading against him again otherwise it's going to be you're going to be horizontal on the canvas again um but um, maybe the, uh, the the better opposition official will come from. We've got a new wave of fighters, young fighters, who are moving into championship level as well. People like Israel Madrimov as well. Might be a little bit too early for him, but he's not a sort of fighter that's going to re- turn down the opportunity and it has to go from the zone to fight on Showtime, he he won't give a flying fuck. Um, he's super confident in his abilities. Um, but the Eric Walker fight was a fight that, it was a bit of a rude awakening film, but it was a fight that we've already mentioned that he, he absolutely needed at this stage of his career just to sort of pump the brakes on him a little bit and say, look, you're not going to knock out everybody all the time and um, you've got a hell of a lot of deficiencies with trying too many power punches as well but because Jamel is a, is a little bit too smart for that he's not going to stand there and trade if he doesn't have to he can box Madridov has has good feet as well you know he's a gymnast uh, that's where he's learned his switching ability as well uh, as well as judo so he can, he can, he's got that one two switch right hand but when he's switching he's just switching too much in front of the target as we mentioned as well so he's going to have to encompass the switching with those pivots and use the shoulder if he does that then he'll, he'll get prime position against Jamel if Jamel is using that that he tends to do that same check left hook pivot off to his left he does that all the time so Madridmov will have will have the opportunity of, you know, with that right hook he fires as well to stop Jamel doing that. But it's all speculation. I I don't know official what's going to happen, but um, uh, I'm sure Charlo is going to be gunning for that last belt so he can become the king, the undisputed king at 154. Then, um, then maybe he'll join his brother at 160 pounds, but that's going to be a little bit ridiculous as well because they're not going to fight one another. So if one, no, of them, so, yeah. um, it's going to be another case of musical chairs as it was at 154 pounds with both of them and their best friend Eris Landley Lara. You know, all three of them, you know, sit down and have packed lunch together. You know, all great. <laughs> another of them were going to fight one another. So that was kind of a bit of a joke in that division with the belts being held hostage. Um, yeah. What do you think, official? 
Lubin next for him or Patrick Tixira? Tixira still got to fight Brian Castaño, I believe, the Argentinian, who's a very good fighter, actually. We drew against uh, Ares Landy Lara. Uh, yeah, so Tekshira is the one I have to to watch uh, more of his fights, but this one forty. You got Tim one... as well from Australia. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. So so that's it. That's a good call. So uh, let's let's just uh, follow his progress and see. You know, see his future fights and uh, how. How, 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 sorry, sorry. Uh, is he going to be able to to develop into into top level fi fighter? Uh, there are some who, who already think he's a, he he's a real threat to to the top level fighters. So yeah, I, I mean, look. To be honest with you, this this division can be a bit exciting. Uh, by by the fights we are getting from them being that that there there is a lot of glass chain there anybody can hurt anybody uh except uh Jermal charlo because i thought that both of the charlo brothers have really good sturdy chains better than uh, than the most so yeah let's let's track madrimov's progress probably see Probably see if there is going to be somebody from 147 moving up in the future, possibly. But to be honest with you right now, I'm not really that excited at 154 when when I can give you like six or seven way better weight classes from the top of my dome. So yeah. I'm not really not really excited about this division. I'm not really excited about... Uh, 169er. I mean, I don't even know where Canelo is in which division. I believe he doesn't know neither. Uh, so they're all over the place. I'm not really sure. And, and look, yeah, Canelo is a very good fighter, but is there some some real uh, opposition uh, for him? There is no at the moment, in my opinion, at those weight classes. Although for for the bigger bigger Charlo, but right now I I kind of switched the subject because uh, you you was asking me about one one fifty four and I switched it into a one sixty sixty eight conversation. Uh, look, it would be I would be interested into a possible Charlo Germal versus Canelo fight, uh, but I'm not really excited about those divisions. And uh, one last point about uh, Rosario versus Jermel that I almost forgot to mention that I want to mention is that, look, I'm not sure if, if it was really a bad decision for uh, for Jermel, sorry, not Jermel, for Rosario to to go to go and stay close to, to Charlo because I thought that if he stayed at a longer range, range, he would get easily countered by Charlo's explosive one-twos. Uh, I really think he he doesn't throw those long punches, long-range punches properly. 
And I think that uh, Charles Jermel would have stopped him at that range too anyways. So the way I saw this fight is like he said himself he knows he cannot compete at long range uh, because of that, those explosive one-twos from Charles. So he he went for a war, knowing that he doesn't have a, a great chin, but tried to. He was probably hoping to to hurt Charlo, which, well, was not successful. He didn't have any success at really hurting him at all. So. That's how the fight finished. And uh, people believe, and uh, I I may agree with them, that the, the reason he quit was, I mean, the reason uh, the fight ended the way it ended was because he quit, because he fig- he figured out he was unable to, to hurt him. So he just gave up. And I think I would agree with that. But yeah, sorry, sorry for going all over the place. Uh, and uh, instead of uh, answering your question, going into three three different subjects, I put it, I put it down to um, hallucination, as I mentioned. You know, <coughs> seven o'clock in the morning and then minimal sleep after. I kind of feel like that at the moment, officially. That my head is kind of spinning still. Just need. Um, just need a you know a recuperation period at the moment and uh, trying to find the fights again so you can have a, you know sit down and, and just look over the fights a little bit more carefully as well. So uh, I guess we may do that next week. Anything we didn't cover, which something we can pick up on by watching getting the fights because they're all being taken down all over the place. From you, we've had a bit of a difficulty in trying to find. Right. Uh, uploads. You know the Fox, the copyrights have been very, very active in taking everything down. Even when they're up, even four, four o'clock in the afternoon for like ten minutes, and they're straight away they're down. Even I saw a couple of, I saw a couple of the fights official in in under a, under a Mandarin text, and they were still taken down. <laughs> so. They were they were out in force, very proactive, and uh, what's the point? You know, I mean, you've, the pay per view is already done. You know, who's going to get it on the on the replay? Um, kind of ridiculous, you know. At least let people catch up on the fights in the morning. You tend to you get a lot a lot sort of better response, but uh, people are just trying to protect their products so well, but. All right, official, that pretty much covers both of the pay-per-view cards, top to bottom. Yeah, boxing got a bit of a resurgence it needed. You know, I was getting, I think we were all getting a little bit sick of all of the the UFC guys just talking about how boxing is dead. You know, just roll it over and put it in its casket. But, um, yeah, it was definitely something that was needed, but um, kind of a, I don't know. I, I, I have bitter sweet thoughts because I, I just thought it was a very predictable card from top to bottom. Pretty much every fight. So I wasn't too excited. The fight I was more looking forward to anything was the Casemiro and the Duke Morgan fight because that was just a, an all-out war. So just enjoy that for what it's going to be. 
Um, but um, yeah, that, that that's that. Anything else you want to talk about, official? Over the weekend that's happened. No, I think it would be all the the two fights I was definitely looking forward were Bridges Dorticus that turned out to be a letter of a fight yeah, that and then it was supposed to be and the Rianchenko versus uh Jermal. Yeah, Junior Dorticos, he uh, my god did he stink out to join that one. Wow. Anyway. I think that'll do it for the um, the coup mm, de yeah. this Sunday. Um, next week, I'm not sure. Haven't really looked at the schedule at this moment, so I'm unsure what's what's happening. If there's anything during the week or anything over at the weekend, anything you can think of official on top of your head. Uh, hold on, I'm about to, to see the schedule. Uh, okay, so let me see. Just give me a second. Uh, September 30, uh, UK O'Hara Davis. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, October 30. Uh, that might be the, MTK, the MTK tournament, which O'Hara Davis is competing in. That's, yeah. that's been quite good thus far, official. Oh yeah, I was not following it. But anyways, there's a, there's a, who's is Zepeda versus Ivan Peranchik, and wow. uh, yeah, yeah, the, that's all. Uh, after that, in two weeks, there there's uh, Navarrete fighting and uh, uh, more UK fights, uh, Lipinets up to Kakarov. But that's in two weeks, I think. Uh, the only real fight is Jose Zapata versus Baranchik. So, yeah, we may talk that, about that as well. Yeah, yeah that's... A... Yeah. And by the way, uh, sorry, just quickly, I want to give shout-out to everybody who was watching this stream. Thank you for... Uh, Thank you for being with us, Big Dan, B-Space, Justin Marshall. Uh, then there was Unravel Boxing, Talking News. Um, who else? Let me see. Triple JJJ, The Shepherd of Sons. Overhand, uh, B-Space, I already mentioned them. Um, sorry if I forgot anyone. Uh, yes, L-Dog, Nick Harmer. Thank you for being with us. Corruption to you. <laughs> okay, that'll that'll do it for the uh, the fourth transmission of the coup d'etat of boxing. Stacked out card. Um, yeah, very hectic, busy weekend. But um, yeah, we're through that one. We'll be back same time next week. Kind of a, a lukewarm type of fight schedule for next week but um i'm sure we'll find something to talk about official we'll cover the cards we'll try and do the mtk card as well if there's if there's a lack of boxing then that's a they're doing a now i'm, I'm not not too familiar with what's happening in the uk these days but i've been watching a little bit of what mtk 
global are doing as a you know as a separate new entity as a marketing and management company and they they're kind of filling the void where, where sky have been massively failing and they've been putting on some good fights good matchmaking um they've got a lot of good fighters under their ranks as well you know abali is one of their fighters as well mtk they 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 manage tyson fury as well so it's a growing organization Hopefully yeah they... miller i think as well yeah that's right billy joe they, they've got a lot of fighters so i think they're their company is based out in Marbella as well in Spain, uh, where they tend to do all of the the recruitments and the administration. So, if they can get a you know a television contract, I think at the moment they're just based on one of the terrestrial channels in the UK. It could be Channel Five, I think. So it's not getting a lot of exposure. You know, if if the uh, Sky contract is is up for renewal and mtk can shift into that i think it'd be a great fit you know they've got a lot of young fighters as well who so that, that that's the key to developing their you know their their rivalry now for for you know they've been taken i think terry flanagan as well has moved over to there so they're getting a lot of former world champions as well who are going over there just to grow their ranks and pass on their experience down to the younger fighters so so we'll we try and cover that golden golden ticket or whatever the tournament is called as well. So, yep, that'll do it for this week. So thank you, everybody. I just want to relay the, the appreciation that official has already voiced out to everybody who's joined us for the uh, fourth installment of this brand new podcast. Hope it was a, a decent couple of hours for you guys as well. Sorry, we didn't get to any 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 of the questions, but it's kind of a case of being almost half dead, you know, eyes closing, you know, desperately needing sleep after just a crazy week. Um, but uh, yeah, no no discourtesy to anybody, and uh, thank you to everybody, and uh, we'll catch you same time next, please. So um, 